Thank you, Pam. Good morning, church family. Let's show our enthusiasm and celebration for Jonah and Benjamin one more time. Praise the Lord. Amen. We have worshiped through singing. We've worshiped through the, through the uh, ordinance of baptism and hearing testimony of God being at work and seeing that symbolized and going underwater and out of the water as a sign of new life. We're going to worship through teaching from God's word. But before we do that, we're going to worship through our tithes and offerings. So if you're visiting with us, this doesn't apply to you. But if Hope Church is your home church, our ushers are going to be uh, coming along right now. Those who wish to uh, make a physical offering this morning, just slip up your hands or holler. You can see Thomas and Peter are making their way uh, through the... Uh, uh, through the, I don't know if this is the auditorium or whatever it is, through the parking lot uh, right now, and you can go ahead and, uh, and make your offering there. Some of you know this, that, that before I was, a, uh, I was a pastor, I was a teacher. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, this time, late August, getting ready in September, getting ready to teach geography. Now, I hadn't taken geography in university. This is what they often do to new teachers, I don't know, to sort of break them at the beginning. And, and I hadn't taken geography since high school. Geography is not a real strength. Just ask my wife about our trip to Chicago when we ended up in Wisconsin. Um, but <laughs> geography is not a real strength of mine. My dad was a geography teacher, even local geography. I mean, when I get beyond Scarborough, like if I get east of Toronto, I know there are places and there's distinct boundaries between Ajax and Whitby and Pickering, and I'm sorry if you're from there, but it's all the same to me. I just, I have very little graphs sometimes of certain places. Now, if you want to understand how to get around Toronto, you need to have a sense of geography. If you want to understand what's happening in the world, you need to have an understand of, understanding of global geography as well. And if you want to understand what's going on in Psalm 60, you need to understand some geography. Psalm 60, in the introductory notes, and in the actual text of the psalm, 12 different locations are noted. And so normally I would have a, you know, a slide projector and I would be able to put, a, to put a map up on the screen for you, but those are provided in your handouts and they're also in our church center app in color if you would like to uh, follow along there. This is the last psalm. Psalm 60 is the last psalm where we have these introductory notes, where we're given a little summary about what David was going through at the time when he wrote this psalm. This is also the last psalm that's called a mictum. Uh, the mictums are, are, mictum means uh, engraved. Some people call these psalms the golden psalms, like they're engraved in words of gold. Or, or a, a closer... A, Possible translation is the idea of covering, that most of these psalms were written when David was undercover, when he had the Jason Bourne baseball hat on and was hiding as a fugitive from Saul who was trying to kill him. But in Psalm 60, Saul is long gone. Uh, Psalm 60 also says in the introductory notes that, and, and bless Pam for coming up here and reading scripture. I think that's one of the hardest Psalms. All of these place names, all of these Hebrew terms. That, that phrase, I can't even say this. Shushan Edith. I, I have no idea. It sounds like someone sneezed in slow motion and they translated it. In, in Hebrew, the, the closest guess to what Shushan Edith means is Lily of the Covenant. But what on earth is Lily? I'm not even sure if the translation helps us at all. We don't, it's probably a melody or something like that, a familiar tune that this song was 
sung to. But then you have these places, Aram Naharim and Aram Zoba. And these were places in the north of Israel. You can see them there on map number one. This is present-day Iraq, present-day Syria. And David, this is described in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, David is at war with these nations to the north. But then it goes on to describe this battle that took place in the south, in the battle in the valley of Salt against Edom. You see, the context of this psalm is this. David was busy fighting up in the north, and then Edom decided to capitalize on the fact that David was occupied in the north, and they invaded from the south. And it says here that, that Joab went down there and had a mighty victory. Now, 2 Samuel 8 says it wasn't Joab, it was Abishai. Those are their brothers. They're David's nephews. They probably went down there together. And there's different numbers that are recorded between the psalm and between 2 Samuel. That's just probably recording from different stages in the battle. But the interesting thing about Psalm 60 is that Psalm 60 gives us a little bit of a window into what it was like to be David. Because 2 Samuel, as good of a job as it does, as the inspired word of God, walks us through the life of David. If you read 2 Samuel chapter 8, you're just going to think that David is just bulldozing over country after country. It says in 2 Samuel 8 verse 6 and verse 11 that God gave David victory wherever he went. He went, fought this battle and he won. And then this battle and he won. And this battle and he won. But Psalm 60 catches David in that moment where he's in the north. He's fighting the Arameans, the, the Aram Naharim and Aram Zoba. He's in the north. And then 300 kilometers to the south, he finds out that the Edomites are going to invade him. There's a space in between. Sometimes when you hear about someone's story or you think about your own story, you forget about those gaps in between, those moments where you were desperate for God to come through. On this side of history, we have a sense in which, oh yeah, yeah, God has come through. God rescued David. David won all of these victories. But there were many times where David wondered, is this the end for me? Is this all there is going to be? That time in between. So kids, to help your parents understand, I, I, I've got some actions for your parents and maybe you could, uh, can I have all the kids sh stand up for a second? So all the kids, I want you guys to stand up and I want you to do these actions to help your kids to understand. What we're gonna see in Psalm 60 is a prayer. So put your hands together like a prayer. David begins with a prayer. Then David remembers a promise. Do you ever make a pinky promise with someone else? So then link your pinkies. That's number two. So we have a prayer. Do a prayer. And then a promise. And then David feels confidence. Double, not just one thumbs up, but double thumbs up. All right. So that's the movements of the psalm. It starts with a prayer. David remembers a promise from God. And then that gives him confidence. All right, kids, grab a seat. Look to your parents and say... He's talking about the prayer now, all right? Tell your parents. I'll, I got to hear you. Tell them. All right. He's talking about the prayer now. Listen to David's prayer. He says, oh God, you have rejected us, 
broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You've torn it open. Repair its breaches for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given wine to, given us wine to drink that made us stagger. David is having a hard time. This sneak attack by the Edomites has caught him off guard. As he says, his defenses have been broken down. He says that the land is quaking because of this invasion that's coming from the south. The two battles are 300 kilometers away. I mean, even riding a really good horse, it would take three and a half days just for David's sentries to get there to find out what on earth is going on in the southern border. So that David is probably writing this as Joab and Abishai are riding on their horses and one day goes by and David's picturing where they are on the journey and wondering how bad is the battle? How badly are we defeated? What is the assessment of what has actually taken place? But notice what David continually repeats. He says it six times in these first three verses. You have, you have. You have. He's not talking to the Edomites. The Edomites are the one who have, who have done this attack, but David knows ultimately who is responsible. David knows. He believes and understands that God is sovereign and God is in control of all things. And David took great comfort in that. Even when, even when he's struggling the way that he is, he knows that he's praying to the God who is in control. Sometimes we can think, oh, what is happening in our culture? What's happening to our country? What's going on in our schools? What's happening in my family? What, what, all of this. And sometimes we think that God is somehow separate from that. But loved ones, there isn't a single thing that, that happens in our life that is outside of the sovereign control of God. And Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't mean all things are good. The invasion from the Edomites was not good. But God was going to use it for David's good. And he uses the struggles and the challenges that we face when we pray to him and cry out to him for our good. David uses two metaphors here. Do you see in verse 2, he says the land has quaked. It's been torn open. He uses the metaphor of an earthquake, like a sudden, unexpected earthquake, right? You, you never see in the weather report, you know, there's Monday's going to be sunny and Tuesday's going to light rain with a chance of, a chance of a thunderstorms. And on Wednesday, there's going to be an earthquake. That's not the way it works. It's unexpected and it's destructive. And so that's how David is feeling. I didn't see this coming. I couldn't predict this. I thought we were at peace with the Edomites, and yet they have invaded me. That's what's so hard about trials in our life. Even though we know that we're going to expect dangers, toils, and trials as we go through the journey of life, we're so often caught off guard, aren't we? And for David, it was unexpected. And then he uses the metaphor of spiked punch at the school dance. He says, you have made your people to see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that has made us stagger. That God, in his anger, had given the people of Israel this cup. And the cup, all throughout the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah 
and the book of Jeremiah uses this metaphor of the anger of God being given to someone to drink. And David says, God, you, you must not be pleased with us. You must be angry with us. You've rejected us. You've given us this strong wine to drink. And I'm so disoriented by what is taking place. I can barely find my footing. I can barely, you know, when you see someone who's intoxicated, they can barely walk. They don't know which way's up. They can barely talk. They can barely form sentences. David is like, I don't know what to do next. I don't know what my next step is. I don't know what to say. You've given me this strong drink. And then the psalm, though, in all of the chaos of the earthquake, the rubble of the city, David suddenly sobers up. He overcomes the hangover from the strong drink. And it says in verse 4, You have set up a banner for those who fear you. You have set up a banner for those who fear you. In ancient warfare, armies would have these big, tall poles with flags with different messages on them to let them know when the archers are supposed to fire or when the cavalry is supposed to charge. And there was also a banner to say, this is the safe place. If you need to, re if you need to retreat, there's reinforcements here. Run here. And David, in the midst of all of this chaos, and he's trying to make sense of what's going on, he looks up. And he sees this banner, the banner for those who fear the Lord. This is what Moses referred to in Exodus chapter 17 when the people of Israel had another surprise attack from the Amalekites. Moses sent Joshua into the battle and he had Aaron and Hur hold up his hand so that he could pray. And then Moses after that said, the Lord is my banner. We turned to the Lord. We knew that it wasn't our armies that won that battle. It was God who had raised up a banner saying, trust in me, depend on me. Then the ESV translation says that, that the banner has been raised for those who want to flee from the bow. That, that this banner means that you're out of range from the fiery darts of the enemy. That if you flee here, if you come to this strong tower, you will be saved. Another way to translate this verse, because Hebrew is kind of difficult to translate sometimes because the vowels were added later, there's a footnote in your ESV Bible that says that this banner is also there or could also be translated as it's there to be displayed because of truth. I, I, the, good, the good news is about this, these, uh, uh, about this translation issue is that both are true. That God raises up a banner and we can run for safety. And where do we find safety? When we get our feet on the truth, on the solid ground. We might have been walking like we were drunk. We might have had the ground split open in front of us like an earthquake. But David says, I'm running to the banner of the truth. And that's what we need to do as the people of God. Run to God because he alone has the truth. There's so much lies in our world. But God has raised up a banner, a banner of the truth. And then look at verse, then there's a Selah. There's a pause. Selah, the closest Hebrew translation is, means to lift up. And so this is an opportunity for you to lift up your eyes, to pause and to say, what are you running to? Are you seeing the banner that God is trying to wave in front of your eyes saying, come here. Stop trying to fight this battle on your own. You're not alone. Come to me. I will defend you from the bow. I will let you stand on my truth. And then I love what he says in verse 5. He says, 
that your beloved ones may be delivered. You know, I love that David, even though he was going through all of this, even though the people of Israel were drinking the cup of the anger of God, he knew that they were still loved. He says, we're the beloved ones. Sometimes Satan, when we go through hard times, the, the, the thing that Satan tries to convince us of is that the reason why we're going through this is because God doesn't love us and that God has, has abandoned us. But David knew, David had so, strong, sound theology in the sovereignty of God, yes. But even deeper below that, the love of God. Just like Romans 8, 28 tells us that all things work together for good, and that's comforting, but the rest of Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Am I alone out here? I'm going to back that up, okay? All right? Because the rest of Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Amen. Height or depth or angels or demons or the past or the present or the future, whatever it is. No authority, no power can separate us from the love. Yes, we need a strong doctrine of the sovereignty of God, but we need need an even stronger understanding of the love of God. He says that your beloved ones in verse 5 will be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. So kids, that's the prayer. All right, let's get our hands together. Show your parents so they remember. It starts with a prayer. And then... The prayer ends with, God, you will answer us. How is God going to answer? He's going to answer with a promise. So make a pinky promise. He's going to answer with a promise. Look at verse 6. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. And, and Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Again, you can refer to the map in your handouts or on the church center app to get a sense of where these places are. A Shechem is to the west of the Jordan River. It's a city in Ephraim. The Vale of Succoth is on the east side of the Jordan. He's talking about east to west. Now, he doesn't mention every tribe and every city in Israel. That would make a really long song. But what he's doing right now is he's, he's talking about from Halifax to Vancouver. When I say from Halifax to Vancouver, you know what I mean, right? Like, Regina's not like, well, what about us? Or, 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 you know, some of these other, you know, Toronto's not like, oh, we're the biggest, how come? No, you know what I mean when I say from Halifax to Vancouver. I'm talking about east to west. I'm talking about the whole country. And that's what David is saying. I'm sorry, that's what David is recording that God has said. And what is he doing with these territories? Notice in verse 6, he says, I will divide up. I will portion out. You know, what's amazing is that what's happening here is this isn't a new, fresh answer from God. So often we want, God, what do I do with my wayward teenager? Answer me, please. God, what do I do with this financial difficulty? Answer me, please. God, what do I do about the housing market right now? Answer me, please. And we expect just this sudden, clear answer, like he's going to speak to us. But notice what verse 6, how it begins. God has spoken. This is previous revelation. 
All David is doing is summarizing Joshua 24, when the land was allotted. And David went back to the word of God. This is what we need to do. We're so often want to hear something new from God. Meanwhile, God has already told us everything we need to know. And there isn't a verse in the Bible about how to deal with your wayward teenager or how to deal with a, a variable or fixed rate mortgage. There's no verses about that. But there's verses about who God is and who you are and what it means to live for him. And God reminds David through the reading of the Bible, God reminds David, hey, David, that, that land, that territory that you're scrambling around trying to defend from north to south, that land, by the way, is the promised land. It's the land that I apportioned out. It's the land that I divided up among the 12 tribes. And then he goes on to say, look, look, look what he says next. He says, Gilead to the east, tribal territory in, the, in, in Manasseh. Then he mentions Manasseh, which crosses east and west. He says, Gilead and Manasseh, he says, they are mine. David, David, the country you're trying to save is not your country. It's, these are my chosen people. And loved ones, church family, that reputation of yours that you're trying to rescue, that family that you're trying to hold together, those finances that you're trying to manage in these uncertain times, that job that you've recently lost and you're searching for a new one, the family's not yours. The money's not yours. The reputation's not yours. It all belongs to God. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. This is the promised land. This belongs to the Lord. And everything that we have belongs to him as well. He says in verse 7, Ephraim's my helmet. Judah is my scepter. That's quoting Genesis 49.10. Then he talks about these other countries. Moab. Moab was the son or the descendants of Abraham's knucklehead nephew, Lot. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. And Mo, the Moabites were the ones who tried to seduce. First, they tried to curse through Balaam and his talking donkey. They tried to curse the people of God on their way into the promised land, tried to seduce them. And yet God was faithful to his people. And then there's Edom. These are the descendants of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau and the battles and difficulties that they had. You can see all of these on map number two. And then Philistia a newer enemy off the, coast of the uh, off the coast of the Mediterranean. But look how he describes them. He says, Moab is my wash basin. Edom, upon Edom I cast my shoe. He's talking about helmets and scepters, these regal symbols. And then he's saying, but these other countries, these, these other people that you're so worried about, that you're so afraid of, God doesn't give them a second thought. He says, you, my people, you're my helmet, you're my scepter but I cast my shoe on these other things. Sometimes we can get such a big view of the powers of this world or the influences of this world. And God says, that's nothing compared to me. It's nothing compared to the love that I have for my people. So kids, David makes a prayer and then he remembers God's promises. And then lastly, based on God's promises, he has confidence. Notice how I love David's transition game. If you want to have a strong basketball team, if you want to have a good hockey team, doesn't really apply to golf. But 
You got to have a good transition game. When you're on defense, you got to know now's the time to attack. Where we've been on defense, now we have the ball, now we have the puck, now we've got to transition to offense. David, I mean, David turns on a dime and takes nine cents change. He is, he is moving quickly here in terms of his confidence. So he moves from, our country is falling apart, hold it together, to now, he says in verse 9, who will bring me to the fortified city? He's saying, we're not only going to defeat Edom and defend our land, we're going to press forward and invade their territory as well. Too often, Christians are thinking about defense. We have been given the armor of God, but part of the armor is a sword. And that we are supposed to be on offense, preaching and teaching the word of God to a lost world. He says, who will lead me to Edom? Verse 10, he says, but have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth with our armies. David does have confidence, yes, because of God's promises after he prayed. But that confidence is rooted in one thing and one thing only. It's only if God goes with them. God says, if David says, if God doesn't go with us, we're all toast. So he, he says, you've got to come with us, Lord. Verse 11, oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. If God doesn't show up, loved ones, we're all toast. David knew that his army could have all the horses and all the weaponry and all of the trained soldiers and all of the generals and all of the strategy. But if God didn't go with them, he says, vain is the salvation of man. And loved ones, a church can have all kinds of programs and leaders and even gifted, qualified people ready to serve and have strategy and have vision. But loved ones, if God doesn't go with us, it's vain, it's pointless, it's empty. David understood that. I wonder, loved ones, as we head into the fall together as a church family, I wonder, do we understand that? Or do we think, oh, you know, look at our programs, look at our leaders, look at this building, look at all these committed uh, uh, people. We can do some things for the kingdom. We can't do anything unless God goes ahead of us, unless God is with us. And then we can say what David said in verse 12, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. With God, we can do anything. With God, we can turn a defeat into a victory, just like we see in David's life. Because loved ones, God has raised up a banner. And he's raised up a banner that's so high, some of you can even see it beyond the building right now. He's raised up his son on the cross. And said, this is the place where you can flee from the bow, where you can flee from the fiery darts of the enemies. It's the gospel. It's the Son of God crucified for our sins and raised for our salvation. He has raised up a banner. And his son, Jesus Christ, took the cup, the cup that made the people of God stagger, the cup of the anger of God for all sin, for all time. Remember what he prayed in the garden. He prayed, Lord, if possible, take this cup from me. But Jesus took the cup, the cup of God's wrath, the anger that all of us deserve for our sin, and he drank it down to the dregs. And just like Psalm 60 describes that moment in between what seems like certain defeat, David is in the north, 300 kilometers away, there's a battle in the south. What is going to happen? Remember what it would have been like for the disciples in those three days between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. 
that, that moment where you, they were positive that they were on defense. They were positive that it was over. They were positive that their hopes were dashed. And how quickly did the church that Christ established on the rock, how quickly did the church transition from defense in that moment to offense? And they have done, they did valiantly as is recorded in the New Testament. And the same spirit that gave them power gives us power as well. And ultimately, one day, what is said here in verse 12, he will tread down our foes. We know that Christ is coming again, and he will make all things right. Every injustice and every act of evil in this world, he will make right. He will tread down his foes and our foes for his glory. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather in your name as your people. We pray in the name of Jesus that we would turn to you and look to you and run to you as our banner, as the one who has the power to save us. Forgive us for thinking that mere humans can be a source of our salvation. Forgive us for thinking that we as humans can be a source of our own salvation. God, may we look to you. May we trust in you. And may we May we rely on you so that through you we may do valiantly and that we would see you tread down our foes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.